Good morning, everyone. And happy belated Thanksgiving to everyone. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to open up to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Before we dive into John chapter 12, I want to take just a moment and I want to thank Andrew Mee, who's not here this morning because he's preaching at the church that he came from, and Scott Eichelberger for filling the pulpit for the last couple of weeks. Brothers, I don't see Scott in here right now. Where's Scott? There he is. Brother, thank you for faithfully laying out the Word of God. I told the same thing to Andrew. Guys, isn't it a blessing to be able to sit under the preaching of God's Word and be blessed by multiple men within the congregation? I'm just deeply thankful to have that privilege of sitting under your preaching. So thank you. This morning we pick up in the second half of uh, chapter 12. And if you weren't here, Jesus' ministry is winding down. Now I know... That might seem a little premature because we're in chapter 12 of a book that has 21 chapters. And so you say, how can we say his ministry is winding down? Well, because it took us 11 to 12 chapters to cover all of his life, but the final eight chapters are really going to cover the final week of his life. And so in a very real sense, we are coming to the end of Jesus's earthly ministry. Last week, Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem, hailed as a king rising into shouts of Hosanna. But this king does something very unusual in that he calls his followers to prepare for death in the closing verses of 25 and 26, which Andrew preached through last week. He calls them to not hold on to their life too tightly. And then what happens in verses 27 through 50, which we're going to be looking at this morning, is it seems to trigger this prolonged reflection by both Jesus and John on the end of Jesus's earthly ministry and ultimately his death. My hope is this morning that you will see in these words a deep sense of encouragement and a challenge to all of God's people to follow Christ in bearing the cross. Now if you want to follow along I'll be reading in verse beginning in chapter 12 beginning in verse 27. And this is Jesus speaking. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by, by what kind of death he would die. And so the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? And so Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. And when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the, ar has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, 
He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they should see with their eyes and understand with their heart in turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The words that I have spoken will judge him on the last day, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. And what I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just ask that you would bless the preaching of your word for the glory of your Son and the good of his people. Lord, we know many in the room who need to be encouraged. There are many in the room who need to be convicted. Lord, there are many in the room who need both. And Lord, we pray that your word would do what it was meant to do this morning and that you would give courage to your people to follow Christ in death. And Lord, that we would do that in a way and in a, in a manner, Father, that would both increase your joy in our life. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a famous pastor, a famous author, Christian theologian during the World War II era. Eventually he was martyred, uh, killed by Nazi Germany. But uh, before that time, he has this famous statement in his book called The Cost of Discipleship where he says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Now, I wanted to start here this morning because it's one of those statements that has survived and passed down from generation to generation because it so succinctly states one of the central realities and really the central tensions of the Christian life. That the call to follow a crucified Savior demands that we follow him to his death and that it is only through our willingness to give our life, only through our willingness to sacrifice our life of choosing death that ultimately we share in his life. And this is essentially what Jesus in the verses immediately preceding our text this morning means when he tells those who are around him this. He says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. In other words, and Andrew preached a whole sermon on this last week. If you want to hear more about it, go listen to his sermon online. But to sum up what these verses are saying, it's saying this. He's saying the path to true life is the path of the cross. 
The path to true life is the path of the cross. And I know this is one of those things that we say in church that sounds really beautiful and even poetic. But in, ver- in reality, it is incredibly hard to grab a hold of and to live out. The life that Jesus offers comes at the expense of our own. Following Jesus is the path of death. And because this statement, though true, is so hard to wrap our minds around, and because it flies in the face of basically everything the world says, that if you want true life, you must chase after life. You must must not submit to anyone. You must grab a hold of this life with two hands, white-knuckle it, whatever fulfills you, whatever satisfies you, pursue those things, because that is the water that we are swimming in. We need to hear Jesus' words that are completely contradictory to that, that if you want true life, you must give up your own. And I think Jesus knows, well, I know Jesus knows the full weight of what he said because really the rest of these verses that I just read are providing one reason or another encouragements for you and I to take up our cross and follow him. So what we're going to do this morning is I want to give you three encouragements or you could say reasons to take up your cross and follow Jesus to his death. The first reason is that victory comes through the cross. Victory comes through the cross. So coming on the heels of Jesus' statement again to his followers that I just mentioned about their death, Jesus now apparently considers and feels the full weight and horror of his own imminent gruesome death. Remember, it's about a week out at this point. And so he says, picking up in verse 27, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. This is an amazing statement. Jesus, remember, throughout the Gospel of John, has said his hour has not yet come. His hour has not yet come. Every time there's a threat on his life, he seems to be totally unconcerned about it because he's like, my hour has not yet come. So for John, when he says the hour, what he means is the hour of his death. And so Jesus is now recognizing that this hour, this appointed hour for his death has come, that it is imminent. And as he thinks about that death, the word used to describe the trouble in his soul is a word that that really speaks of horror, revulsion. As Jesus looked at the cross, he saw what was about to happen in all its gruesome pain, and he was dreading it. And I think this is something we need to pause on just for a moment, because we rightly emphasize the deity of Christ. It's clear in John that Jesus is the Son of God. In fact, John has gone to great lengths to make sure that that's very clear. But when we see statements like that, it helps us be reminded that he is yet a man. And as a man, he felt deeply. As a man, he was horrified at the cross that was to come. As a man, his soul was deeply troubled. And I think it's important for us to reckon that because I honestly think sometimes we think Jesus did not have any sense but physical pain as he was approaching the cross. But when you think about how you and I might feel if we were on death row, approaching a much more humane death, I think it begins to give us a sense of what Jesus was thinking and feeling as he approached his own. 
And he admits that he wants to pray, Father, save me from this death. But he also fully knows that that is why he has come. He has not come to just be a moral example. He has come to die a gruesome death for his people. I love how one commentator puts it. He says, the horror of death and the ardor of his obedience were meeting together on the cross. And so, this is such a, I love this part. So instead of praying, save me, think about this. He knows it's his purpose. He's at the same time revolted by it, revolted by it. Instead of praying, save me, this is his prayer. He says, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice from heaven says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Church, if you miss the beauty of this, I think you miss a lot of the beauty that comes when we, we look at the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross. In these few words, what we're hearing is Jesus' innermost desire and the goal of all he does. He's expressing it with this prayer. Father, I know this means I will die. Father, I know this means I'm going to suffer. Father, I know this means that I'm going to give my life. But Father, glorify your name. Church, that is the heart of Christ. If you want to know what makes his heart beat, glorifying the Father. When he came to the cross, yes, he came to save people. He came for love, but he came primarily, and he walked his father all the way to the cross. What kept him moving was the glory of the Father. And I just want to say this this morning as we apply this, that if you have Christ dwelling within you, if you are a disciple of Jesus, then the beating heart of Jesus as his spirit dwells in you should be the same. That to be a Christian does not mean I just do the hard thing or I do the thing I don't want to do. I just, I, you know, we talked about last week what it means to hate your life. It's not as if if I'm going to enjoy it, I'm going to stay away from it. That's not what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a disciple of Jesus is that underneath everything else is this underlying desire that Father, the Father's name would be glorified. And if there's anything I'm doing right now that is preventing that, I want to stop doing it. And if there's anything I'm not doing that I should start that would bring glory to his name, then I want to start. See, the prayer of a disciple of Jesus is the prayer that Jesus prays as he approaches the cross. Father, glorify your name. He even taught his disciples to pray this, right? He said, how should you pray? Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's the same idea. He wants the desires of his people to be aligned with the glory of the Father. And thankfully, God the Father does not leave any question of whether or not he will answer that prayer because he actually audibly says, I have glorified it and I have glorified again, meaning that Jesus in all his actions and all his obedience, he has glorified the Father. It's not as if he is just starting to glorify the Father, but that in this act of obedience, of going to the cross, he will glorify the name of the Father again. So he is promising Jesus, even though he doesn't need to hear it because he knows already, but for the people that he is going to glorify the Father in this. Now, the question we need to ask, and I, the main point of the, the, um, the point is, how is the cross victory for Jesus then? How does this act of going to the cross actually glorify the Father? 
And I think in verse 31, we see three reasons as he says this, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So again, I think we see three things that Jesus's death on the cross will accomplish. First, it is the judgment of this world, meaning this. If you want to understand how wicked humanity is, you have to look at the cross. That is the judgment of this world because the most perfect man who had ever lived, who came in the world to save, who came and did no wrong, who came to rescue his people, was crucified on the cross. And in that act, what he is doing is he is indicting the evilness of the world and the righteousness of God, which is bringing judgment on all humanity. Secondly, he says the ruler of this world will be cast out. In other words, the very act in the moment of this apparent defeat of Jesus where the people of earth and their evil stand up and actually crucify him thinking that we will topple him, we will put our agenda above his, actually is the moment when the enemy of this world is cast out. It's the actual moment of his defeat because by his death, what Jesus did is he cleansed his people. He removed the claim that Satan had on them because now they were his, purchased by his blood. And he had conquered the one who had power over them. You see, in the cross, even though this apparent defeat became the actual moment of victory for Christ, And then thirdly, he says, by his death, he will draw all people to myself. Again, just as Andrew said last week, this means all without distinction, not all without exception. He means all kinds of people, not every person, as we know. But Jesus' death is what sets him apart. It's what elevates him and makes him worthy to be worshipped. When we see people come to Christ now, they come not because he is a great moral teacher, They come not because he is a philosopher who has got great wisdom. They come because of the cross. Because no one else claimed to be what he is and did what he did for sinners like you and me. What draws us to Jesus is most clearly seen in the cross. And so it is by the act of his death that he shows that he is superior to all the gods of the world and draws him, all his people, to him. Because it's in that act we, we uniquely see the glory of God, that our eyes are opened to what our God is like. But this whole idea thoroughly confused the crowd because... They were under the impression that Jesus was going to be the king. The one who deserved a crown. And crown and kings don't go to crosses. Guys who wear a crown don't die on a cross. And so they said in verse 33, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered, and we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? 
You see, I, I do want to kind of emphasize what they got right. The people here understood that if he was the Messiah, the Son of Man, that character that we've heard kind of again and again throughout the Gospel of John, we see in the Old Testament, if he was that king, then he was going to be, that he was a king who was going to have a kingdom that was never going to end. And they assumed he was coming to claim it now. And I think oftentimes, I think the modern church does this as well. That we forget that the victory that Jesus brings comes at the cost of a cross. And the reality is all those who will follow him will one day reign with him, will one day walk with him, come through the door of the cross. That it is the death that we must die in order to walk with the glory and have the life of God. And so Jesus didn't say he must be lifted up, but they did rightly understand the implicit necessity of what was happening, that his death is necessary for final victory. And ultimately what he does is by his call to follow me to his death, he is making that same call to you and me today. And this is why death is one of the central paradigm for the Christian life. Victory comes through death. It's why Paul so frequently calls us to crucify our flesh with its passions and desires. Where he talks about our life in, in Romans 12, he says, offer yourselves up as a living sacrifice to God. You see, we want to focus on the victory we have in Jesus, and he makes really clear that the path to victory is the path of the cross. Which means... If we are going to walk with him, enjoy his life, we must be on the same path of crucifying the flesh. That we must take up our cross. Now I want to just take a moment and practically mention what this looks like. Because the reality is that you and me all have a trouble, and I don't know what it is, I'm just going to use an example of sin that there are places in your life where you are doing or you are saying or you are walking in contradiction to what God has commanded in his word. You all are. I am. And the reason we are doing that is because we think it's better than obedience. The reason we are doing that is that we think that our way is better than his way. Now, we may not articulate that, but it is the reality of what we do when we walk in line with our will, not his. And ultimately what he's saying here is that part of what it means to trust Jesus is trust him that when we die to ourselves, it is better. That it is better, that it is actually the path to victory. It is actually the path to joy. It is actually the path to glory. That when we die to that thing that we want to do that seems so right but ultimately needs to be crucified, that we don't do it just because we're like, I know I'm supposed to, but because we trust that in that dying of ourselves, of our sin, of our flesh, of our old man, it actually brings us life. And it's just really, really, really hard. I think one of the things that just constantly blows me away is how I've been walking with Christ for coming on 20-something years now. And it's no less hard today than it was 20 years ago. <laughs> the sins may be different. I'm not struggling with the same thing. But there are still places in my life where I want what I want and I think it's better than what he wants for me and what he has commanded of me. And I don't realize that ultimately my death is my victory. And ultimately this leads us to our second point. 
That glory comes through rejection. That glory comes through rejection. <laughs> we had an interesting conversation over Thanksgiving, and we were talking about Amazon reviews and uh, whether or not they can be trusted. <laughs> but the reality is that they are a powerful marketing tool. I don't buy almost anything without a lot of good reviews. So I've never seen the product myself. So I want to know what other people think. And we tend to think that a crowd of negative reviews, a mass rejection by a large group of people means that something is flawed with the product, don't we? And that helps us understand why John thinks it's necessary to explain the large-scale rejection of Jesus by his people. And that's where he moves to next because in verse 36 we read, When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Essentially what we have here is Jesus' final indictment on the rejection of God's people. He is saying that I have done everything that I could possibly do to prove to you, actually raising a man from the dead, that I am the Son of God, that I am who I said I am, and you still do not believe. That is not my fault. That is yours. And ultimately, we have to recognize the weight of this argument because Jesus was the prophesied Messiah that the Jews had been waiting thousands of years for, and then most of the Jews rejected him. Even to this day, 2,000 years later, most of the Jews reject him. Do you feel the weight of this argument? John is trying to help you see that this is a real argument, that we have to reckon with this reality that he's been rejected by the people he came to save. He's their Messiah, and he, they, they said, thumbs down, one star. The question is, why is that? And John gives an interesting answer in verse 38. It says, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And whom, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, their rejection is to fulfill prophecy made long ago. Notice the logic. It's not that they, they he says that they don't believe because of the prophecy. I think sometimes we tend to think prophecy is merely a prediction, like God knows what's happening in the future, and we miss the reality of this logic that prophecy is not just a prediction, it's a promise. This will happen. As such, it carries the very authority of God. As Jesus says elsewhere, it cannot be broken. Human history serves and submits to the prophetic word of God. Human history bends to the promises of God. And so John sees Isaiah's prophecy was fulfilled in the rejection of the gospel message as he says, who has believed of the coming of the Christ precisely by those who had witnessed the powerful signs displaying his strength when he says the arm of the Lord. He says, in Jesus' rejection, all the things that they've seen, this prophecy is being fulfilled. But then he goes on and says, even more, he says in verse 39, therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they should see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Now he actually goes on to a further step and says they couldn't believe because God had blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Now this may sound harsh, but I want you to remember something. This is not God saying that, oh, they wanted to believe. They had this deep desire to believe, but God was preventing them. What he's saying is that their hearts were wicked. 
Their hearts were hard, their eyes were blind, and God gave them up in the hardness of their hearts to reject him. That he allowed them to go the way that they wanted to go, and in that they were hardened. Their eyes were already blind of his glory, their hearts were already hard, but this wasn't because Jesus had failed. Or as many unbelieving Jews of the day may have believed, the evidence of his not being the true Messiah. Instead, what's clear is that it was the exact opposite. Even in their rejection, they were doing exactly as God had planned and purposed in order, as Isaiah 53 tells us, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And so the emphasis through this first section is on the rejection of the Jews under the sovereign hand of God, but ultimately this happens not independent of their actions. We cannot see God's sovereignty as somehow disconnected or independent of human responsibility, and to do that would be to damage the scriptural witness because both are upheld, which is why Jesus says, gives next the human reason for their rejection in verse 42. 42 he says, nevertheless... Many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now, it's easy to read this and be like, oh, they believed, that's great, but they just didn't want to tell anybody about it. But, but John's making it really clear that this wasn't genuine saving faith. This was a spurious faith. This was lip service faith. This was something I might believe, but I'm not actually going to commit to. And we know that, that despite all of what they might be saying, because they don't ultimately profess it, because they would rather be in the synagogue than in the people of God. They would rather have the acceptance of their friends than be a part of Jesus' people. And Jesus himself has said in John 5, 44, how can you believe when you receive the glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God? In other words, true glory and true belief or true glory comes from God and is found when we have received rejection for following a rejected Savior. In other words, true belief is willing to suffer the rejection of people to receive the glory of God. Amen? And I think it's important for us to recognize that because being afraid to publicly profess Christ because you are afraid of what people think shows that you may not be a true believer. Which is part of the reason baptism, I believe, is commanded by Jesus as a public witness to our faith. Why doesn't he just say, you can believe in your heart and that's good enough? No, he wants you to make it public through baptism. And that whole act, even of baptism, is part of what produces this, or that, that whole act of baptism is part of what is meant to be this hurdle in order to be able to decide and define at some level, is our faith real? Do we care enough to be uncomfortable enough to be potentially judged and to come out publicly, I want to serve and follow Jesus more than I care about it, what anybody else says? You see, you can't follow Jesus and love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Ultimately, if you love the glory of man more than the glory of God, it shows that you don't understand who God is. 
But I also want to make this point for genuine believers because I think you can be a very honest, sincere, genuine believer and constantly fight the love of man, your, and a love of the glory of man your entire life. I want to make that clear because if you don't recognize that right now, genuine believer, man, woman in Christ, that you struggle with that, then you're simply unaware. We are constantly dealing with this battle of recognizing that we desire the glory of those people that we can see sometimes more than we desire of the glory of the God we cannot. And so part of the way that we, we fight this is not simply by just trying harder, but looking more intently at the glory of God. Because as God becomes greater and larger and looms larger and your trust in him grows, you will want and desire his glory more than you will desire the glory of those that are around you. And I just want to give you one practical example of this. If you are wondering whether or not I struggle with it, because I have found that genuine, genuine Christians can be moral, they can be good, they can do a lot of good things, and most all the time they don't feel any guilt, they don't feel any fear of being rejected, but the moment they open their mouth to evangelize, the moment you begin to tell other people about Jesus, the moment you begin to say, I actually think it's good if you follow Christ, not just me, that's when we begin to experience the condemnation of the world. And that's, I think, really where the fear of man or the fear or the desire for the glory of man becomes most evident in us. And I preach this to you because I think as Andrew was preaching last week, this is what deeply convicted me. I mean, this may be hard for you to believe, but it's not hard for me to stand up here and preach. You know what's harder? To walk up to a neighbor and to strike up a conversation about the gospel. That's true for me. And you know why? Because I love the glory of man. And somewhere deep down in you, you do too. And so part of what it means to follow Christ is to choose the glory of God over the glory of man. And in that, there will be a death that you will feel, but it is the death that brings glory. Amen? And finally, our third encouragement to follow Jesus to his death is that life comes through submission. Life comes through submission. You see, in this final section, Jesus makes what has been called the summary of his public ministry. From now to his death, you're going to notice a shift in tone picking up next week until he's on the cross. He is not talking to the world at large. He is not talking to those who believe. He is only talking to his faithful few. But first, he, he brings together the various themes of his ministry one final time for the masses. It's kind of like his, his closing argument before the jury of his peers before he finishes. And he begins in verse 44 saying, And Jesus cried out, it's this idea of crying out, so make sure everybody hears me one final time. Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. Now, has this the first time we have heard this? No. We've heard this again and again. Jesus is the word of God made flesh. He is the revelation of God. He is the son of God. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the father. He brings the glory of God to display on earth. In other words... In this, he is saying that Jesus is the true divine representative of the Father. If you want to know what the Father is like, look at the Son. And you can't know God or see God 
or relate to God apart from Jesus Christ. But next he says in verse 46, I have come to the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Again, is this the first time we've heard Jesus talk about the light? Certainly not, right? I am the light. Yes, thank you. I want someone to be like, yes, we've heard this a lot before. I feel like that sometimes I'm preaching to Don. John, we're hitting this again? Yes, we've heard he's the light. And by believing in Jesus, the darkness was taken away. In other words, and again, this is one of those things where you have to recognize that the Jews saw themselves in the privileged position as those in light, as those who had the word of God and therefore were enlightened to who God is. And by saying this, he is saying that the word in and of itself is not what gives you light. I am the one who's speaking, who, who the word is speaking about. And if you don't know me, you're in darkness. That it is only through Jesus that the eyes of our hearts are enlightened so that we may know and walk and have life and joy and peace in God. You may have the word, you may listen, you may study, but if you don't know Jesus, if it's not pointing you to abide and draw your life from him, you are missing what the word has intended you to do. The light comes from Christ. And Paul will use the analogy that the Old Testament, that when people read the Old Testament, they don't see it, they don't see it because their eyes have been blinded with a veil. Because it is only through Christ that the veil is lifted. And then he continues in verse 47. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my word has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Now here Jesus makes explicit what he's been saying from the beginning, that Jesus came to save, that that was his purpose for coming into the world. Is that the first time we have heard this? Certainly not. That saving his people was the purpose of his miraculous signs. That it was the purpose of his teaching. And ultimately it was the purpose of his sacrificial death. But it's interesting, he does add what I think is a new wrinkle, and he says that this promise for salvation is for those who obey. And I don't think he's making the point here that it's for those who obey simply because that your obedience is what saves you, but it is by your obedience that your faith is made evident. Let me make that again. It is not your obedience that saves you, it is by your obedience that your faith is made evident. And so he's making the point that if you genuinely believe what I say, and it's really easy to believe what Jesus, especially in the South, especially in sub-Christian culture, especially if you're in a Christian family, it's really easy to profess faith in Christ. It's really easy to say, I believe. But how do we know when someone believes? They obey. Believers are growing in obedience. Quickly? Nah. <laughs> Perfectly? course not but they're moving in that direction and why is that verse 49 says for I have not spoken on my own authority again it's so interesting Jesus has the right to speak on his own authority and he does sometimes but here at the kind of the close of his ministry he is of his public ministry he's not talking about he's not talking about his authority he says I have not spoken on my own authority but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, 
what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. In other words, Jesus came to deliver the commandment of eternal life from a loving Father. He came to give life from the Father. But the way to receive that life is by believing and obeying the Son. So follow Je- following Jesus is believing and submitting to Jesus as the source of life, life through death. We follow Jesus by submitting to Jesus, even when it means death, because we trust that when we submit ourselves, even when it feels like death, that ultimately it is life. Because we believe that Jesus would not call us to die if he did not plan to give us something better. That anything that we're giving up is not something that will even compare to what he is planning to give us. You see, in this death and in this submission, his point and purpose for his people is that they would have light and life. And I want to just mention that if you are here this morning and you have not submitted your life to Jesus, I am not talking about have you ever been at a church before? Have you ever prayed a prayer before? Have you ever said, oh, I've believed in God before? But you have not submitted your life to to Jesus. That you have not given your life to him. Father, do what you will with me. Jesus, take me. That that is what it means to have life in his name. Lip service faith is cheap. It looks like a life submitted to the Son. And I just want to encourage you this morning, if that is you, please do not assume just because you've been in a church for for years that you have a genuine relationship with Jesus if your life is not marked by obedience. And I would just encourage you, come see me or, or Jeff after the service, we would love to talk with you about what it means to genuinely follow and love Jesus. Because he's worth it. Because that's how we have life in his name. But I also want to say that this central act of belief necessary throughout the Christian, but I also want to say that this is the central act of belief necessary throughout the Christian life. It's this belief that despite how obedience to Jesus, submission to Jesus may so often feel, and I just want to be honest with you, For Jesus in this moment, he's the preeminent example, but when you obey against your flesh, it will feel like death. Anyone who says anything differently than that is selling something. It will feel like death. But ultimately, it's how we enjoy the life of Jesus. And so we come into a relationship with Jesus by saying, I want to obey more than I want the the things that I think I can gain on my own. I'm not going to try to be obedient enough. I'm going to trust in you and submit to you. And yet the whole Christian life continues on that way. That's why repentance and faith are a necessary part of the Christian life. We repent as we come to see and understand our sin, how we have gone our way and not Jesus' way. And then we look to him for the faith, not just for the forgiveness we need, but ultimately for the strength we need to walk into his strength and his joy. And ultimately, this is the promise for all those who choose to follow him. 
who choose to take up their cross, that throughout their death, their resurrection, their submission, that they will be victorious, that they will receive glory, that they will have life. So why should you follow a Savior who was crucified? Because it is by following a crucified Savior to the death of yourself, through the death of your sin, to the death of your pride, to the death of your will, that you will walk in the goodness and joy and beauty and glory of Christ. 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 12 quotes a, I think it was an early Christian hymn. And I want to close with these lines and then we'll pray in it. 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 12. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Church, maybe be a people who die with Christ in faith, recognizing our weakness, our, in, our inability, and trusting in his sufficiency and his goodness in his life. Let's pray. Father, it is a hard word to hear. And I pray that by my words I have not communicated in any way, shape, or form that salvation is a work. But Father, salvation is faith that works. And yet at the same time, Lord, I pray that you would give our people boldness and trust, that they would be willing to crucify the flesh, that they would be willing to do, to do uncomfortable things, that they would do, be willing to do things that cost them. Because in that cost, Lord, there is the joy of following Jesus. And there is the joy and the promise of the life that he gives. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would spur us on, Lord. Embolden us and strengthen us as we seek to live a life faithful and worthy of the cross and worthy of the gospel that we have received. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.